Okay, we'll get started this evening. Begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these two short books that we'll be looking at this evening. And we can see from the books that even in the midst of the greatest despair, your promises hold true. And we can look at you and depend upon you. And we can rely upon you even in the toughest of times. We thank you for that. And we ask that you would help us to clean understanding from these two books. In Jesus' name, amen. So first we're going to look at Lamentations. I'm going to consider two books this evening. I was trying to find out what would be a good place to put Obadiah, because it's only one chapter. I didn't want to take a whole evening with it, so I had to put it with something. So Lamentations is a good, a good match, since they're both dealing with similar issues. So first we'll look at Lamentations. It's really a continuation of Jeremiah's writings, so we still call it the, the Jesus Christ, the righteous branch. The Hebrew title of the book is the word ikah, how. And that comes from the first verse of the first chapter, which begins with that word. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. So that's the, the common Jewish practice is to take a word from the, either the first word or one of the first words of the, of the book as its title. The title of this book in the Septuagint means Tears of Jeremiah. So even though the, the Hebrew text doesn't actually say that Jeremiah wrote it, there is a, a long tradition that he did write it, and he's named specifically as the author in the Septuagint. We'll talk a little bit more about authorship later. The flight characteristics. Flight, once again, stands for facts, landmarks, itinerary, gospel, history, and travel tips. So the facts, uh, Jewish tradition attributes the authorship of the book to the prophet Jeremiah, though he goes unnamed in the book. The Septuagint and the Jewish Targum point to Jeremiah as the author. The Jewish Targum is a, is a translation of the Old Testament into Aramaic. Um, often, in many cases, it's, it's more than a translation because there's a lot of commentary that's put into the text. But anyway, that's, that's what the Jewish Targums are there translations of the Old Testament Hebrew into Aramaic. And that also points to Jeremiah as the author. Style and content similarities between Jeremiah and Lamentations also point to Jeremiah as the best candidate. Babylon sacked and sacked Jerusalem and the southern kingdom, Judah, in 586 BC. And the book was written shortly thereafter. At least that's my thinking. Not not all scholars would agree with that, but I always I've always tended to associate the book with the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. As the as he grieved the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet. This poetic book reveals a man distressed for a nation under the consequences of its own sin. It ends with a prayer for the restoration of the nation from captivity. The book is made up of five acrostic poems. Acrostic poems are poems that begin with a certain letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
and each is a eulogy to the kingdom of Judah, which was recently destroyed at the time that this book was written. The itinerary, which is an outline of the book, there are five chapters, and so we'll each, each look at each chapter. Uh, the first chapter is um, the pain of Zion's fall, and there's a series of, of metaphors or, or um, me metaphors that are, that are used to, to explain the plight of Jerusalem after its fall. Metaphors or analogies. In the first chapter, uh, Zion, Jerusalem, is compared to a mourning widow. The second chapter is the plight of Zion's fall. And there, Zion is compared to a weeping daughter. The third chapter is the purpose of Zion's fall. Why did it fall? In that chapter, uh, we use, use the analogy of a afflicted man. The fourth chapter is pondering Zion's fall, thinking about why this happened. And in there, the, the main theme is tarnished gold. That's the metaphor or analogy that's used. And then chapter five is a plea on behalf of Zion's fall. And there, Zion is compared to a fatherless child. And when, we, when there's a plea for, on behalf of Zion's fall, it's, it's looking forward to that time of restoration. The Gospel in the book of Lamentations. The ultimate hope of Christ that provides the one bright spot in Lamentations, and there aren't many, but there is one, the single break in the clouds among five funeral dirges came when Jeremiah recognized God's compassion in the midst of his sorrow. Though the Lord's mercies, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the most famous verse, of course, of, of lamentation. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Hebrew word for mercies is chesed, which can be translated as loving kindness or covenant love. It's the kind of love that comes as a byproduct of God's covenant with his people. Seventy years after their exile to Babylon, God brought the Jews back to the land because in his mercy and loving kindness, he said he would. When God makes a covenant, he keeps it, even in the worst of times. Jeremiah understood this essential quality of God and praised him for it. The history, the events described in the book took place when the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. Jerusalem's walls were taken first, then the temple, palaces, and other buildings followed. More than 4,500 Jewish men and probably 10,000 to 13,000 women and children were taken as prisoners and sent to Babylon. The siege of Jerusalem began on July 10th, 586 BC. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing in the first century, long, long afterward, much later, uh, gave a record of the event, echoing uh, 2 Kings 25 and uh, 
2 Chronicles 36 and Jeremiah 52. So these books, these passages describe the, the history of the, the fall of Jerusalem. But the Book of Lamentations really captures the, the psychology and the, the emotional distress that people experienced in this event. Jeremiah had previously predicted all of it, and because of his relentless commitment to proclaiming God's message, he had been thrown in prison by Zedekiah and his officials. Ironically, Jeremiah was released when the Babylonians came. He was released from prison and set free, while Zedekiah, the king, and his cronies went into captivity. The travel tips, the things that we can learn from the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a stirring reminder of two realities. God's judgment and his grace, love, and mercy. The judgment side gets more exposition here in this book because of its immediate nature. The Jews were still grieving their losses at at this moment in history. But as Jeremiah attested, God's steadfast faithfulness and mercy are what give us hope when hardship threatens to overwhelm us. God wants you to turn to him in hard times. Jerusalem's downfall resulted from God's people persistently turning to other sources, other nations, idols, false gods, for help and protection, instead of trusting God to protect them and sustain them. Relationship beats religion and rituals every day. As as Jeremiah lamented over how the presence of God's enemies defiled the temple, he noted how the Jews had misplaced their trust by putting it in a building rather than in the God for whom the building was made. Our spiritual lives should not be about a place but a person. The temples we create in our lives, work, activities, and even ministry are empty and vulnerable to destruction. As is always the case, the the liberal scholars always question the supposed author of a biblical book. And so once again, they're, they're... not certain or they deny that Jeremiah could have written the Book of Lamentations, but there are several reasons to believe that he did. First of all, as I mentioned before, Lamentations is attributed to Jeremiah in the Septuagint and in the Targums. Second Chronicles 35-25 informs us that Jeremiah was a writer of Lamentations. It's not saying there that he wrote the Book of Lamentations, but it's saying that he wrote Lamentations, so he was familiar with that style of writing that uh, genre, you might say. The author was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem. We're told many times throughout the book that, that, that whoever wrote the book actually saw the destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah did. There are striking similarities in style and phraseology with the book of Jeremiah. Both books, Jeremiah and Lamentations, anticipate similar judgment on the nations, which... Uh, rejoice in Jerusalem's fall. So 
both, both books talk about how those nations will be punished that rejoiced in the destruction of Jerusalem. And finally, the same sensitive soul and sympathetic sorrow for the nation of Judah are reflected in both books. So both books were written by a person who genuinely cared about the fate of Jerusalem and Judah. The structure of Lamentations. Now, I like to talk about this because this isn't something that comes through in, in an English translation. The first four chapters are written in the acrostic form. In other words, each verse of, of the chapter begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So chapters 1, 2, and 4 are each 22 verses long, each verse be beginning with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and the first verse of, of the chapter begins with Aleph, and then the next one begins with Bet, and then the next one begins with Gimel, and the next one begins with Dalet, and so on, through all of the Hebrew letters. So there are 22 verses in each of chapters 1, 2, and 4. Chapter 3, however, contains 66 verses, since three successive verses are allotted to each letter of the alphabet. So in other words, the first three verses begin with Aleph, the second three verses begin with Bet, and so on. So there's, there's three verses that begin with, with each letter of the alphabet. Chapter 5 is not, strictly speaking, an acrostic, so it doesn't begin with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But for the sake of symmetry with earlier chapters, it does contain 22 verses. So it does have the 22 verses for each letter of the alphabet, even though it doesn't begin with those letters, it still contains the 22 verses. The book's acrostic symmetrical structure gives the collection of poems, which the Book of Lamentations is, is a collection of poems, poems. Each of the chapters is a poem. It gives it an aura of completeness and facilitates memorization and recitation. So it's easier to memorize and to recite if it follows this structure. And here is a visual drawing of how Book of Lamentations is organized. So the first chapter is, is about the city. It gives an outside view. The second chapter is the wrath of God, an inside view. And then in that third chapter, that middle chapter, is so where it reaches the climax, the compassions of God. And that's where we read that famous verse about his, his mercies are new every morning. But even though we have a climax there, uh, where it's not resolved. We, we go back down in, into the depths of despair. So in, in chapter 3, we have the upward, upward view, uh, the sins of all classes of people in, in the society. It's chapter 4, the overall view. And then chapter 5 is the prayer, the future view, looking forward to that restoration that will come someday. So that's a quick visual representation of what the structure of Lamentations is like. 
So now let's take a quick look at uh, each chapter of the book. The author gives, in chapter one, the pain of Zion's fall, the author gives a pathetic description of the fallen city. How like a widow has she become? Remember, that's the analogy, that's the metaphor that's used in chapter one. She that was great among the nations. The national desperation is described forcefully in these words. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like the sorrow which was brought on me. Then chapter 2, the plight of Zion's fall. What God did to Zion is depicted. The Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. And why God did it is summed up succinctly. The Lord has done what he purposed, has carried out his threat as he ordained long ago. All who pass by wonder, is this the city which was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? It certainly didn't appear that way after it was destroyed, did it? Well, it's a pile of rubble and smoking ruins. Chapter 3 is the purpose of Zion's fall. Here Jerusalem is depicted as a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, under the rod of God's wrath. The prophet took comfort, even in the very midst of Jerusalem's calamity. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Once again, chapter 3 is the, the climax of the book. Assured that the Lord will not cast off forever, he asked, Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Thus, thus he received confidence through confession. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. God is not going to forgive until sin is repented of, right? Therefore my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. Chapter 4, Pondering Zion's Fall. Remember the, the tarnished gold theme I mentioned? How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed, cried Jeremiah. Their present punishment is described as greater than the punishment of Sodom. For the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food in the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is how desperate things became when Jerusalem was under siege by the Babylonians. The future prospect seems very dim. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. Yet the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, 
is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. So Judah has been punished and they will be taken into exile, but God will be with them and he will return them, bring them back into the land. Chapter 5, the plea on behalf of Zion's fall. In this last chapter, Zion is pictured as an orphan child. Zion's cause is presented. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Behold and see our disgrace. Women are ravished in Zion, virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. The cause is pleaded. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you so long forsake us? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. So the, the book of Lamentations seems to end on a very despairing note. The last verses of chapter 5. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. One commentator uh, feels that that last line uh, would be better translated this way. Even though you had despised us greatly and were very angry with us. So that's a little, a little less stinging. For a concluding verse. And that is the presentation for Lamentations. So now just give me a minute here to go to Obadiah. Okay, Obadiah. Jesus Christ, our Savior. The meaning of the name Obadiah. The opening verses of prophetic books often contain some information about the time uh, in which the prophet lived, an indication of his hometown, and the name of his father. None of this is provided for Obadiah. Even his exact name is a matter of debate. The Hebrew name means worshiper of Yahweh. However, if read with different vowels, if the vowel pointed differently, it takes the meaning of a servant of Yahweh. So it could either be a worshiper of Yahweh or a servant of Yahweh. The flight characteristics for Obadiah, as I mentioned, little is known about the author of the book. 
of Obadiah besides his name. That Obadiah prophesied against the Edomites provides the only clue to when this book was written. Edom fell to Babylon in 553 BC, so it fell to Babylon a little bit later than Judah did. So Obadiah was most likely re recorded his prophecy before that date, before 553. Uh, typically thought to be anywhere between 840 and 553. Now, why such a huge range? Well, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. The most common view is that the book was written shortly after the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem in 586 BC. But there are some different views, and I'll talk a little bit about those. Obadiah's brief vision from the Lord was directed to Edom, also known as Esau. The people of Edom are the descendants of Esau. The brother of Jacob, son of Isaac. Obadiah warned against pride and retaliation against the Lord's chosen people and also described how possessions and position will ultimately count for nothing in the day of the Lord. So, Obadiah is a short book, only 21 verses. In the first part of the book, verses 1 through 16, we see God's pronouncement against Israel's rival, his pronouncement against Edom. And then in the larger part of the book, verses 17 through 21, we see God's promise of Israel's revival. So those are the two divisions of the book. We can see the redemption, we can see redemption scarlet thread in Obadiah by jumping ahead to New Testament times and comparing two very different kings. Herod was, was an Edumean one of the remaining descendants of Edom. He nicknamed himself the Great. But we know him primarily for killing babies in Bethlehem in a manic hunt for the Christ child. His successor, Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist executed for condemning Antipas's marriage to his former sister-in-law, Herodias. He wasn't about to let the truth of God stand in the way of his own lust, much like the sinful Edomites of old. Uh, in short, uh, the Herod family motto could be summed up as, what's in it for me? Antipas faced off against the other king, the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, taking part in the trial before his resurrection, before his crucifixion and resurrection. So that, that is sometimes that, something that, that people who are re just reading quickly through the Gospels don't catch at first, is that the Herod who was ruling at the time of Christ's birth is not the same Herod who was ruling at the time of Christ's death. Because remember, that first Herod, Herod the Great, that was ruling at the time of the birth, he died shortly after Christ was born. So they were, one was the Herod the Great and one was Herod Antipas the Herod that was ruling at the time of Christ's death. And there are some other Herods, too, in the, in the New Testament that aren't actually called Herod. Uh, well, there's, there's another Herod that was 
remember in, in the book of Acts, there's a Herod that is rather disgusting. He died and was eaten by worms. <laughs> and then um, when, when Paul appeared before Agrippa, his name was actually Herod Agrippa, although it doesn't call him Herod Agrippa in the, in the New Testament, it just calls him Agrippa. So there are quite a few different Herods in the New Testament. But Jesus' motto is, what's in it for you? His philosophy centered on doing what was necessary to get you right with God. The Herods planned only for themselves, typically Edomite in their pride and arrogance. But Jesus has a future and a hope planned for you. Even this extremely brief book of Obadiah, so focused on God's judgment of an unrepentant nation, points us to this glorious king. So just as there is Jacob and Esau in their mother's womb, so their descendants, Jesus and Herod the Great, stand in stark contrast to one another. While there is some uncertainty about how, about the exact time period during which Obadiah's book wrote his book, we do know that the Jews and the Edomites had a long history of animosity. The Jews traced their lineage back to Jacob, while the Edomites traced their lineage to Jacob's estranged twin brother, Esau. Because God chose Jacob over Esau to carry on his promises, tension and mistrust festered between the two groups for centuries. Obadiah's message reminds us that God will defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. He is the mighty Savior, extending mercy and grace to his people Israel, whom he delivered from Edom and will redeem in the last days. Pride leads to destruction. We know we're familiar with that statement from the book of Proverbs. But pride goeth before a fall. Even the greatest sin was pride. The people thought their stronghold and reputation for wisdom would protect them as they fed their uh, feud with Israel. It stretched back all the way to Jacob and Esau. But God held Edom accountable and will hold present nations and peoples accountable for unrepentantly abusing and persecuting his people, whether that be Israel or the church. God protects his people because of who he is, because of who he is, not who we are. In Obadiah, we see God stand up for and protect his people, even though they were sinners, idolaters, and adulterers. When you feel far from God, don't uh, soak in the mire of your own failure. Take a step backward. Take a step back toward him. Eric has often used that analogy of how the difference between a believer and an unbeliever when they fall into a mud puddle. You know, the believer doesn't want to stay there. He's, he's uncomfortable. He wants, to, he wants to be cleaned off. Whereas the, the unbeliever is just happy and you know, doing backstrokes and just loving it. 
He will always be there. God will always be there. Our God is faithful to finish what he started in us. We're assured of that in the New Testament. And our salvation is perfectly secure in him. Um, next, I wanted to just show you a, a few maps of where Edom is, what Edom was. So here we see Israel up here. There's the, the Dead Sea. And so south and east of the Dead Sea is where the Edomites lived. These are the Seir Mountains. They're often mentioned in the Bible, the mountains of Seir. But that's where the Edomites lived. And at its greatest point, uh, this entire region here of Edom was south of the Dead Sea. This was all Edom. But by New Testament times, Roman times, the, the Nabataean Arabs had driven the Edomites out of their homeland. This is where Edom used to live, the people of Edom. But they were driven out, just this little part here in the Negev, in the southern part of Israel, is where the people of, of uh, Idumea, the Edomites, lived. So you have these three terms, Esau, and Edom and Edumea, they're all used interchangeably. They're, they're, they all refer to the same people group. So Edumea is just the, the Greek name for Edom. So Esau, Edom, Edumea, it's all, all the same, same people group. Now, one of the things that you, you see in the book of, of Obadiah is how the Edomites were very proud of their, their rocky fortress. They lived among the rocks. And so they, they weren't afraid. They assumed that nobody would ever be able to conquer them. And so one of the most famous places in that region is Petra. Now, Nancy, when you went to, to Israel, did you go to Petra? You didn't go to Petra. Did you, on one of your trips, or more than one? Yes. So this will bring back, bring, bring back some memories for you. Have you been there more than once, or just one? Just one, yeah. So as you approach Petra, you go through this long, winding gorge called the Sikh. Very narrow. They say that uh, that uh, twelve men in this gorge would be able to hold off an entire army because it's very it's very difficult for an attacker to get through this gorge. And this is why they why the Edomites felt so impregnable. Nobody could invade their fortress. They thought. So this is some more photos of the Sikh of this narrow winding gorge going into the. Into, into Petra. So, um, it's called the Seek, and of course, punster that I am, I can't resist. I always say, Seek, and you shall find. That's how you find Petra, you go through the Seek. There's another photo of the Seek. 
And then when you finally get into Petra, here you see this huge, it's called the treasury, El Kazna. It's, it's a structure that's carved right into the end of the cliff. And that's, that's the nature of Petra. That's all, all of these huge buildings are carved. The caves and the, and the, the front of the building is, is carved right into the, into the rock. So there's another view of the treasury as you get into Petra. And somebody, I forget who wrote this, but somebody wrote that the poet, poetic statement that describing Petra as the rose red city half as old as time. You heard that expression before? I think it was some explorer that explored this region early on, back in the 1800s. And there you get a perspective of how huge these, these structures are compared to people. This is inside the city of Petra there. Most of the structures that you see there today don't go clear back to the time of Obadiah. They, they were built in, in, in New Testament times, in Roman times. But you still get a good idea of what it would have been like back in the time of Obadiah. There's a, a theater, an amphitheater, carved into the rocks here. You see some tourists. They look pretty small compared to the size of this enormous place. And here we're inside one of the caves looking out at Petra. A lot of the caves that you see in Petra are just tombs. And by the way, in Nabataean times, they actually had water pipes you know, clay pipes that brought water in, into the city. So they would have a water supply. Now, views on dating Obadiah. When was Obadiah written? There are two minor prophets that are really difficult to date. One of them is Joel. And that's what we will be looking at the book of Joel next time. And then also, Eric will be speaking about the book of Joel in, in Sunday school. And he's going to begin with the book of Joel going verse by verse. So he and I have been talking about this issue of dating the book of, of Joel and trying to get that nailed down. But I, I found out as I was studying for this study on Obadiah, that Obadiah is just as difficult, if not more so, to date than, than Joel is. I mentioned how with most of the prophets, you, you get some information about the time in which they prophesied in relation to one of the kings of Israel or Judah. And also, we usually get the, the name of their father, or the some other information that tells us when they were 
prophesying with him. We don't have much to go on with either Joel or Obadiah. Most scholars have concurred in the judgment that Obadiah should be dated in the 6th century BC. In other words, the time of Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians. And that's what I have always thought. I'm certainly in, in that camp that thinks the book of Obadiah would have been written sometime around 586 BC. Either reasonably early in the Judean exile or later in that century. The primary evidence for this date is Obadiah's apparent denunciations against Edom for its raids into Judah at the time of Jerusalem's fall. An event remembered in other biblical passages, Psalm 137.7 and Lamentations that we just looked at, uh, chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. Other scholars associate the book with events during the reign of Jehoram, uh, in the 9th century BC, 848 to 841 is when Jehoram was king. So three centuries earlier. In, in 2 Chronicles 21, we read this. And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabs who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and also his sons and wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. So that's another view on when Obadiah might have been written. This mentions here, this passage of scripture mentions the Philistines and the Arabs. It doesn't mention any Edomites. But if you, if you read the context of this, just before this, it tells us that Edom revolted against Judah. Edom had been under the control of Judah, but they revolted. And it talks about how Jehoram made an unsuccessful attempt to subdue them. They weren't subdued. So were the Edomites allies of the Philistines and the Arabs? Were they helping them? Were they cheering them on? Possibly. So that's why the... Uh, why some scholars think that this was the time of Obadiah. Because there definitely was uh, a temporary capture of Jerusalem and the looting of the royal palace. So perhaps that was the destruction of Jerusalem that they were talking about. I still tend to think it was the later one in 586 BC under the Babylonians, but this is an underview. Several passages are common to both Jeremiah and Obadiah. So that you see four of them there, places that where there's this parallel between a statement that is made in the book of Obadiah and a statement that is made in the book of Jeremiah. 
one's view on whether Obadiah is 9th century or 6th century depends largely on whether you think Jeremiah borrowed from Obadiah or Obadiah borrowed from Jeremiah. So that has a lot to do with what, where you come down on that dating controversy, whether Obadiah borrowed from Jeremiah or Jeremiah borrowed from Obadiah. Still others would take a third view, uh, they take a middle course, placing the book during the reign of Ahaz in the 8th century. But the historical record of the attack of the Edomites and the Philistines at that time makes no mention of the capture and desolation of Jerusalem depicted in Obadiah. So there's three views. Of, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the 8th century view is is not correct, but I still tend to, to lean toward the 6th century view, but I can see some value in the, in the 9th century view. So let's take a look at, at those few verses in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah speaks of the certainty of Edom's overthrow. It's definitely going to happen. The cause of their overthrow, namely violence and pride, and the character of, of their overthrow. That is, they would receive the same treatment they had given Judah. So they thought it was such a great thing to, to see Judah's mis misery, but the same thing was going to happen to them because they delighted in it. Whereas the doom of Edom will be dark and terrible, the deliverance of Judah will be bright and beautiful. And that is something that could be said of Christians today. It's not that, um, contrary to what Joel Osteen and others say, that uh, it's not that Christians never encounter any difficulties in life, but we can be sure that our, in spite of our difficulties, we will come through in a bright and beautiful way. And we will experience the blessings that, that Christ has promised us. I, I sometimes refer to, uh, jokingly refer to the Book of Lamentations as Joel Osteen's favorite book in the Bible, simply because it's, you know, such a such a contrast. Lamentations doesn't fit in with your best life now. <laughs> so I say that facetiously. It's his favorite book. Obadiah speaks of the triumph of Judah over her enemies, the treasures of Judah and their possession of the land. And speaking of the, of the possession of the land, we are even told that some of these areas like Edom will become part of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. And the triumph of Judah as the Lord possesses the kingdom. So, there it is. We got through two books tonight. <laughs> I'll close in prayer. Father, we 
never cease to be amazed at how you have worked through history to bring your plan about to make it possible for your Savior to come and perform his saving work. And we know that it's just as certain that the, prom- the future promises, the un- yet unfulfilled promises, will come to pass. We will thank you, we thank you and rejoice in them. In Jesus' name, amen.